We're going to go with the, uh, this mic, or can we get the lapel mic going? Okay. I think we'll just, I'll just, I'll try to stand in one place here. So we're in a race of, of faith, and the start of the race matters. Uh, it's, it's clearly important. And as, as, we, as we talked about over the last couple years, um, particularly last year when our theme was endurance, the, the middle part of the race matters, that we not quit, right? But, but the end of the race is paramount, that we finish well. And of course, as, as folks who, who don't know exactly where the finish line is, uh, that means all the more important that we never quit our race, that we keep running, right? Some of us know the finish line is coming closer, but none of us knows that day. Well, the end of the race is paramount. I just want to encourage you, make sure that you make it across that finish line in, in faith, like Jacob did. And we know, of course, that, that Jacob did not always run his race well. But we see here at the very end of his life, as he laid on his deathbed, looking up at his son through blurry, faded eyes, we know that he finished well and in faith. And so in this text, I'd like to point out in the verses that Pastor Ken just read to us, we see dependence on God and even worship coming out of his lips as he, as he blesses his sons. I love in verse 18 how in the middle of blessing his sons, he just cries out to God, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I think that was just a, a cry of his heart straight up to God. He waited for his salvation, for his deliverance. And we see him as he blesses Joseph in verses 24 through 25, speak of God in faith-filled terminology, very personal terminology. And we'll look at, we'll look at that together here in a, in, a, in a few moments. But Joseph and his brothers understood that these very last words of their father were not only blessings upon them, but that they were prophetic words. So look again with me at verses 1 through 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So you can imagine that they they would have leaned forward around his deathbed to hear what he had to say to them. And, and Jacob blessed his sons more or less in their birth order. Not exactly, there's one exception. But generally speaking, he started with, with Leah's sons, his first wife and the oldest, Reuben and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar. And then he blessed the sons of Rachel's maiden and his concubine, Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali, and then he blessed the sons of Leah's handmaiden, who was also one of his concubines, and that was Zilpah, her sons Gad and Asher, and then he blessed his beloved Rachel's uh, sons last, Joseph and Benjamin. But Jacob's blessings of his sons are varied, and so there's really three kind of categories of, of words we might just say here. Words of judgment, words of blessings, and then finally what we're going to kind of land the plane with today, we're going we're to consider some words that were unexpected of a royal promise to come for Judah, his son Judah. But let's start with the words of judgment. Now his oldest, Reuben, had some great, or he had at least one great unconfessed sin in his life. Many years earlier, he had crept in and slept 
with his father's concubine, Bilhah, in Genesis chapter 25. And I don't know if you notice here, but sin begets sin. You know, how many of you ladies would have liked to have been married to Jacob? I don't see anybody raising their hand, okay? Um, I don't know if that thought crossed your mind, as I mentioned, just reminded you of his, wife, his two wives and then his wives' handmaidens, who somehow became his concubines, okay? Not a great uh, example to his, his sons. And so here we see his, his oldest son actually sleeping with his concubine, Bilhah, and it's just one verse that describes this incident, Genesis 35, 22. And certainly there's no doubt that there was some lust involved in that sin here, but I think there was something greater than just that. There was a usurping of his father. There was, there was a disrespect. It was likely a power play in this small tribe for dominance that, that Reuben had made. And Jacob, for whatever reason, had, had been fearful, maybe even of the power of his oldest son, and had never really, uh, at least in the recorded text, done anything about it. But, but here we see on his deathbed that Jacob had a long memory. And so Reuben was likely nervous, and the blessing started out pretty well. Verse 3, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So Reuben's thinking, and I'm sure he's, he's nervous, okay, but he's thinking, wow, maybe, maybe he forgot. Maybe he forgot about that. But then the blessing turns into more of a curse. He says, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so what we see here is that Jacob undid the, the blessing of his firstborn. He undid Reuben's blessing. He says, you may have been born in the order of preeminence, but you will not have it. And so in effect, he cursed him. He, he would be replaced. And, and we see this work out actually in history. Reuben's tribe settled in the Transjordan, right? And, and, and they actually became a very weak tribe and finally faded from, from history. There, there are no kings in Israel's history that came from Reuben, the firstborn. So what we see here is that there is indeed a reckoning for sin. They will find you out. And so don't, don't pull a Reuben and presume on God's grace. That's why we have the cross. Own up to your sin before an omniscient God who doesn't forget, okay? Own up to your sin and, and repent from it and receive His forgiveness. We have a great Savior. But if, if you seek to, to just cover over your sin and, and, and just uh, invent the lie, the unbiblical lie that, well, God just loves everybody. He'll, he'll overlook it because He loves me. Jesus, Jesus will say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So, so let's, even here in these pages from the Old Testament, even from a chapter that might seem obscure, like what can we get out of this, this, this list of, of, of kind of poetic blessings, okay, and even curses here? Uh, let's be warned. And so it wasn't only Reuben. It was Simeon and, and Levi. They had dishonored their family name by together committing genocide against the Shechemites. Back in, in Genesis chapter 34, we read this story of, of the rage they had because a man had dishonored their sister. 
But when they went to take care of business, instead of just confronting him, they let their anger boil over and they actually treacherously murdered a whole uh, clan, a whole, whole, whole town of people. Okay, and so we read what, jo- what Jacob has to say about that in verse 5 through 7. And he doesn't say anything positive about Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. So they didn't just go after the men. They they went after the livestock. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. As 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 a man who recognizes that I, that I struggle with anger. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to beware of the sin of unrighteous anger. It is destructive. And, and why do I say unrighteous anger? Well, you know, we, we Christians sometimes are good at putting lipstick on a pig. Okay, so we can take things like anger and we can, re, we can rephrase it as like righteous indignation. Well, let me just say to you that Whatever, if it's your anger and you're calling it righteous indignation, I'm going to wager 99% of that is, that 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 doesn't exist. That that righteous indignation is is an oxymoron, okay? And the reason I say that is anytime we have things that that somehow are personal, uh, it's, it's very, very hard, almost impossible to truly have righteous indignation. Okay, Simeon and Levi might have said that. They might have claimed, this is righteous indignation. Do you know what this man did to our sister? Right? We're taking care of business. But they went out there and killed uh, folks who were innocent of that crime. So let's be aware of and, and confess quickly our anger because we get upset. We get upset when people do us wrong. And sometimes when they don't. Well, Jacob's words here also came true. That the tribe of Simeon basically disappeared several generations after the conquest of Canaan. You just, you just find that, that that whole line just kind of fades from, from history. Now the Levites, you read a lot about the Levites because they became priests, all right? And, and so that was a noble task. And yet the Levites were scattered among the tribes of Israel and they did not get their own claim of land, okay? They were forbidden actually to, to have their own territory. Instead, they, they served among the tribes of Israel. And so we see here that Jacob's words here to his sons came true. And so we need to remember that um, God speaks to us and he warns us that there are blessings and there are curses. If, if we follow him, we will be blessed. If we disobey him and we reject his word, we reject his law, we'll be cursed. And it's easy on, on this side of of the, the Testaments in the New Testament to think, well, hey, that was the law. And we live in, a, in an age of grace today. But hear the word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, God says to his chosen people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And again, you may say, well, that that was Old Testament. We're under grace today. Let me tell you, the New Testament does not teach universalism, that everybody can can live however they 
choose, however they like, can worship whatever God they choose, whether that be Yahweh or Allah or the God of this world in our society, materialism, or the God of pleasure, hedonism, okay? We can build our own structure and be just fine. That is not the teaching of the New Testament. There is a real warning in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, out of the very mouth of Jesus Christ, that there is a warning of eternal blessing or eternal judgment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And let me just say to a lesser degree, did we not plant our, our rear ends in, in pews in your name and, and sing songs in church in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, true faith obeys. True faith repents. So, Christians sin mightily, daily. But our deepest heart inclination is to do His will and to obey Him if we have the Holy Spirit in our heart. So let us not fall into the, the lie, a demonic lie actually, that hey, because we are under grace, it doesn't matter what we do, we can live how we please. True faith obeys. True faith works. So let us hear these warning, warnings of, of blesses, blessings and curses and, and heed them them well. Well, in, in the case of, of, of Simeon and, and, and Levi and, and Reuben, we see in history's, Israel's history, the, the curse that their dad put on them actually came true. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 says, and even kind of explains how, says that the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, and we saw that last week, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So let us learn even from these words of judgment for the first three sons of Jacob. But here, most of what we see in this chapter are words of blessing. And so the basic theme, and this is our second point this morning, uh, words of blessing, the basic theme among the rest of the brothers, and we're not going to um, do a deep dive into each of these, but the basic theme is blessing of prosperity, and in the words of one scholar, blessings of prowess in battle, okay? So if you're going to try to kind of, kind of uh, distill the different blessings given to all these different sons that, that, that continue throughout this chapter, they really, it really kind of falls, falls under um, blessings of, of prosperity and prowess in, in battle. And there's some interesting word plays in the original language in the Hebrew uh, on the son's names. So one, one example would be Issachar, okay, his son Issachar. Um, well, the, the, there's a word play on the word sakar in, in, in Hebrew, which means wages. And so Jacob compares Issachar's future to that of like a donkey who carries wages on its back or, or earns wages in a pleasant land through labor. And so it is in, uh, intended to be kind of a blessing of prosperity. But because of some of these word plays, sometimes the, the meaning to us may be a little bit nebulous, a little bit hard to, to interpret. 
Um, but, uh, so I'm not going to go through each of these individual blessings, uh, but we're going to focus on two. But you'll have a few like, like Dan's. We've got some Dan's in this room, I think. Okay. Um, well, Dan, you are blessed by being compared to a viper, but in a good kind of way. So the idea here was that of a, a snake that could bring down a, a horseman in battle, okay, uh, kind of from behind. And so Samson came from the tribe of Dan. And if you think about it, his MO, besides brute strength, he kind of defeated the Philistines by stealth. He was kind of like a snake in the way he attacked the Philistines. Uh, Asher's. We, we have a couple Asher's in the room. I, I, it was good to see uh, good, good, good to see Asher Rask with us this morning, and, and we've got an Asher Wild in our church. I'm not sure if he's here this morning. He may be traveling with his family. Um, uh, we've got an Asher Harlan, right? Well, you guys, you Asher's, you have it pretty good. Okay, verse 20 is just very short and sweet, and he just says, "Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies." Okay. Blessing of prosperity for, for Asher. But there is no surprise that the most prolific blessings here are for Joseph. Um, Jacob here starts as he talks with, about Joseph's blessings here towards the end of, of the chapter. He, he, he uses the imagery of like a, a fruitful vine or a bow. Uh, maybe you've been to an English garden where you, you've seen a uh, a, a beautiful vine kind of growing on an old stone wall and producing flowers, uh, and it's well watered. Uh, that's the picture here. And, 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 and so, the, the, but the, the point here in verse 22 is the source. So listen to verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, or other translations would say vine. A fruitful vine by a spring. His branches run over the wall. But notice that that God is the water source. Psalm 1-3 says that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither and all, and all that he does, he, he prospers. Why? Because he has planted his roots deep into the river, into the stream. And that's what we've seen in the, in the life of Joseph. There were times that he was down and then up, and his life was like a sine wave, you know, and then down and then up, and yet Joseph is the same man, whether he's in the pit, or whether he's, he's running Potiphar's house, or whether he's back in the pit, or whether he's, he's running Egypt. He's, he's the same man inside because the roots of his heart go deep into the well of God. This doesn't mean that his life was easy or even tranquil. The next image here is of a skilled warrior that's outnumbered in battle. So look at verse 23 and 24. Jacob says, as he talks about Joseph's history, he says, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. And we know when we think about Joseph's life, he had all kinds of arrows being shot at him, whether it was the, the words of his brothers uh, that were hurtful as a youth, or even their final betrayal and, and their violence against him, their enslavement, selling him to, to slave traders that took him to Egypt, or maybe years later, the, the false words of accusation. He was, he was accused of sexual assault wrongly by Potiphar's wife. Can you imagine what that would be like to have somebody smearing your reputation falsely accusing you of, of, of sexual attack 
Uh, that's, that happens to people, sadly. And that is an awful thing that happened to Joseph. Uh, and it not only hurt his reputation, uh, but it cost him his job, and it landed him in the pit, in prison for years, unjustly, wrongly. And, you know, it, it, we, we shouldn't think that later when, when, when Joseph was elevated uh, into a position, of, a position of power that his life was simple and easy. In, in the court of Pharaoh, there would have been all kinds of people who would have resented his rise to power, this, this young Hebrew. So don't think that there was no intrigue or enemies or, or people who were out to get him uh, for the remainder years of his life. But the picture that we have here is of resilience and even agility in battle, kind of like Hawkeye. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So he's this great archer, just kind of dancing around the battlefield, um, um, taking out the enemy, not, not giving in, not giving in a defeat. And the, the picture here is that it was God's hand who made Jacob's hand strong, or Joseph's hand strong. God, the mighty one of, of Jacob. In verse 24, uh, B, Jacob calls him the shepherd and the stone of Israel. So, so Jacob here is again referring to Yahweh God as his shepherd. This reminds me of, of Psalm 23 that says, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus, who later said, I am the good shepherd who, who leads us through hardship. Well, Jacob also calls God here as he worships him, El Shaddai, the, the Almighty, the stone of Israel. You remember at Bethel that, that, that Jacob uh, laid down and, and slept with his head on a rock as kind of a pillow? And, and there he had that vision of the ladder, we call it Jacob's ladder, of, the, of, of this portal, as it were, between heaven and earth, and God at the top of this ladder, and the angels ascending and descending. And through that, God made a promise to him to be his God personally. And after that dream, when he woke up, he took that, he took that stone and he said, God is in this place. And he set it up and he turned it into a pillar, a, a memorial to God and God's promise to him, God's promise of provision to him. And so we see several times in the Old Testament where God is referred to as the rock of Israel. Israel was Jacob's new name. Isaiah 30, 29 calls God the rock of Israel. And here Jacob refers to El Shaddai as the stone of Israel. Well, here's, here's the point of this blessing. God had sustained Joseph through his troubles, and, and God is the one who blessed Joseph for his faithfulness. And he will sustain and bless you if you look to him. He'll be your rock, and so are you building your lives on the rock of Jesus today, this week? You look at your life and say, is he my rock? Is my worldview, is my life built on Christ? Is he the one I go to in, in, during my time of duress and struggle? Is he the one that I, that I praise and worship and give thanks to during, during my time of blessing? Um, are, you, are you truly building your life on Christ? I, I pray that you are. And if you are not, I invite you today in repentance and faith to, to call out to him. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But notice here in, this, in these verses how many blessings they, there are for, for Joseph. Um, Jacob cried out and said from his deathbed that the Almighty who will bless you with blessings 
of heaven above. And then in verse 25, he continues, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. And so we see great blessing for Joseph. We see blessing for, for most of his brothers, but the greatest of, of blessings reserved not unsurprisingly, for Joseph. The most surprising blessing, though, that we see in our text isn't this blessing for Joseph, but it's the blessing that we see in verses 8 through 12 for Judah. And that leads us to our our last point this morning, and that is words of royal promise. Words of royal promise. Bear in mind that, that these words came right after the curses for Judah's older brothers, okay? And so Judah may have been thinking here, I am not worthy. Bear in mind that, that he had heard what was happening to Reuben and to Simeon and Levi, and Judah was also a fantastic sinner. He may have been thinking about his sins recorded back at the beginning of the Joseph story in, in, in Genesis chapter 37. His very responsibility, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. That was Judah's idea. Yes, it may have helped save Joseph's life, but it was his idea that, look, here are these Midianite traders. Let's take Joseph out of the pit and sell him into um, manslavery, into chattel slavery. Or It's very possible Judah may have gone back to Genesis chapter 38 and remembered his wicked behavior with and towards his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Okay, this, you you can't read Genesis 38, and, and, and it's hard to read that and not revile Judah because he was just wicked as a younger man. The way he treated this woman and and then finally slept with her thinking she was a prostitute, and then when he found out she was pregnant, not knowing it was with him, was ready to have her burned at the stake. And then when he was confronted with the reality that he was the man, we do see repentance at the end of Genesis 38. We see him say, she is more righteous than I. We know, brothers and sisters, some of us, uh, many of us, if we go back in our mind's eye and back in history, there are sins that we are feel incredible guilt for. Uh, that, that grieve us. It may be tempted to think, there's no way God is going to let me in, knowing the things that I have done. And let me just say that if, if this is you, if, if you have repented of past sin, and if you've looked to Christ, um, if you have forsaken those sins, let me encourage you, when, when your mind goes back there, or when the devil tries to, to, to remind you of those things, look to Jesus and, and forget the past And look forward. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3 because he struggled. Uh, When he he said things like, I'm the greatest sinner I know, uh, he wasn't just being humble. He meant it. He was thinking about people who he had orphaned because he had had killed their parents as as basically a, a Jewish terrorist against Christians. And so he says, one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What we see here with this blessing of of Judah, it reminds us that we stand because of only on the grace of God alone. We stand because of his 
grace. Not because our works somehow outweigh, or the good outweigh the bad, or we can somehow redeem ourselves. It's because of His grace and because of the Redeemer that we have in Christ. That, that He, the perfect man, took our sins on Himself. And, and He actually became our wickedness when He hung on the cross. So that He may pay the full price that our sins demanded. So that God might look at us and see Christ's righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so here we see a promise for Judah based on God's grace of praise and power. And God's grace, you might be sitting here this morning and and maybe you haven't truly repented of your sins. Maybe you're not truly standing in His grace. Let me encourage you today to do so, to fully confess and forsake your sinfulness, and to look to Christ alone and know that He can and will forgive you for no matter what you have done. It is that powerful, His grace. And so we see this promise for a redeemed Judah, a promise of of praise and and power. So let's look a little more carefully here at these verses, verses 8 through 12 here. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dare rouse him? And so there was a a transfer going on here, in a sense, of preeminence from Joseph to Judah. You see, Joseph had had, had dreamed, you remember, at the beginning of our, of our series here, we, 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 we talked about his dreams that his brothers would bow down to him and, and praise him. But now we see a prophecy that Judah's line of descendants will be the ones who will be praised by the brothers. And so here, Joseph, uh, Jacob compares Judah to a lion. And when you think of a lion, what do you, what do you think of? Well, you think of power, right? And, and might, I mean, who would ever mess with a lion over its prey? You know, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Africa. Uh, some of you probably have. I remember as a young man uh, out in the bush in Africa with a, a German buddy of mine. We're driving along, and, and there we see a male lion, you know, laying down under a tree. You know, when you see lions out there sleeping, they can seem kind of docile sometimes. In fact, while I was over there in Mozambique, uh, there was a busload of, of tourists from from, I won't say what country, but from Asia, they actually stopped and saw a whole pride of lion just laying there next to the road, sleeping. They looked tame. And so they got, some of them actually got off the bus and started petting these lions. And actually, the, the, the lions evidently didn't do anything until one of them got on top for a photo and then turned and mauled him, killed him. Actually, I think several, then it kind of stirred the whole thing up. And several people died. And it became a big deal in the press and actually a bit of a foreign relations issue because the South African newspapers weren't very um, compassionate, let's just say, in the way they described the scene. So you don't mess with lions, all right, even if they look docile. Well, Stefan and I are driving along, and we're a couple young knuckleheads, and we see this male lion sleeping under a tree. And so we're pretty excited, you know, we rolled on our window. And, but a male lion sleeping under a tree gets boring after about five minutes. And, and so we, we started, you know, trying to see if we could get it to wake up, maybe give us a little growl. And so we're, we're making Tarzan calls, and Stefan was from Bavaria, and so he, he, uh, he could yodel, okay? And the lion barely gave us a look. So Stefan decided to actually get out of the truck and pick up a rock and just kind of throw it over in the vicinity of the lion. Well, he was a better, he had better aim than he thought, and he, he nailed the thing. 
Okay, that lion jumped up and roared, and I hit the gas, thankfully not right before Stefan jumped into the truck, or it might not have gone very well for Stefan. So you don't mess with lions, but especially if you see some lions, right? Like, if you ever, like, go to, say, Kruger National Park in South Africa, you're going to see, like, thousands upon thousands of impala, right? And the South Africans call those, like, snacks, okay, that for the lion. All right, and they are. You'll see, and eventually you will see either a a a, a family of lions hunting, or you'll actually see a, a group, you know, around a downed impala or a downed zebra or something like that, or even sometimes a downed wildebeest. And when they're eating, nobody messes with them. Okay, nobody messes. The hyenas will kind of come around in a pack and 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 maybe probe a little bit, but nobody messes with a lion over its prey. And so that is what. Jacob here compares Judah's strength to that of a, of a lion over its prey. Nobody is going to mess with that power. And so God's long-term plan was to choose Judah to be the line that the father of his son, our, our Savior. And so we, we see this later in Psalm 78, verse 67. We, we actually see that God rejected the tent of Joseph he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, the, the oldest, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Now, some of this was due to, to Judah's fidelity, okay, faithfulness to God over, over time. But ultimately, this was all about God's grace because the tribe of Judah was not um, uh, entirely faithful to, to Yahweh either. In fact, both lines, both kingdoms were, were judged by being attacked and overcome by, by enemies that, that were ultimately sent and empowered by God. But here we see in this next verse a promise of royalty for Judah. Look at verse 10 with me. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, there's a slight variation in how you even just pronounce the Hebrew that would lead certain translations, like the, the NIV, to translate this, and I think more accurately on this one, usually I prefer the ESV, but I think on this one, NIV actually got a little bit better, that the scepter won't depart from Judah or the ruler's staff between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Okay, so I don't want to get into all the, the technical wonky details here of the Hebrew, but it's just a slight intonation of vowel here. Uh, uh, ch changes until tribute comes to him as one possible translation here, or until he comes to whom it, it belongs, which I actually kind of prefer here on, on this one, okay? But what is clear here is a promise of, of royalty. We, we see this as a messianic prophecy, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. When you think of the royal line of Judah, you think of, of David, Right? King David, the, the warrior king coming from Judah. But when we think of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who do we think about? We think about the son of David, the king of kings, Jesus. So John Calvin um, uh, 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 wrote, It is certain that the Messiah who is to spring from the tribe of Judah is here promised. Okay? Um, uh, throughout church history, um, scholars have interpreted this verse 10 as a messianic prophecy here coming from the line of Judah. And we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so we see a promise of 
power, a promise of royalty, but we also see in the last two verses for Judah a promise of prosperity. So look at verse 11 and 12 with me. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. All right, so this is kind of poetic language. Uh, What does this actually mean? Well, again, we have a very different culture from from that of Jacob, but if we were all riding donkeys around, okay, uh, leading donkeys around, we would have to stop and think about where we tied them up. Okay, so probably if you rode your donkey to your front door and you had a beautifully landscaped yard, you might think about where you tied your donkey up and is that donkey in uh, uh, eating reach of, of maybe your favorite shrubbery. Okay, and so the idea here is that uh, is that of abundance. It's like there are so many choice vines, um, so many choice grapevines in particular, that that you don't even worry about the donkey eating your favorite vine or shrubbery because you have so many of them. And you need to understand here. He talks about wine. Okay, Jacob and his culture, uh, the patriarchs, they weren't Baptists. And so wine for them was a symbol of blessing and prosperity. Wine was a good thing. It it represented God's blessing upon humanity, okay? And so the idea here is that there's so much wine that you could actually wash your clothes in it. That's, That's the imagery here, okay? Normally you would, you know, wash your clothes in water, but wine is really valuable. Uh, Because, you know, if you read this in a wooden way, you're like, well, who would want to wash their clothes in wine? The idea is here, uh, God is going to bless you uh, abundantly, greatly, and we see this fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he turned water to wine in his first public miracle at Cana in John chapter 2. I think his disciples understood. It says, by this he revealed his glory. Right? I mean, I think, well, show me your first miracle, reveal your glory. You know, let's see some planets collide. Let's see some fireworks. You know, let's see you raise a dead man to life. Well, Jesus turned water to wine. And in, in that sense, he was fulfilling this prophecy, showing that, that God's blessing of prosperity has now come to his people. The Messiah has landed on the scene. But I also see a reference in these images of, of the mouth, right? That, that we see here, and, and, and the wine to the future that, that is, is yet to come. In Revelation 19, 15, we read, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So Jesus Christ came as a servant. Make no mistake, he's going to come back as a, as a king as the king of kings, as a victorious warrior king. And no matter what we uh, may see around us that, that might make us despair a little bit, don't worry. Jesus wins. That's, that's the exegesis of Revelation. Two words. Jesus wins. He is coming back one day, and he will reign. He will win. So don't let your heart become too distraught when you, when you check your, your news feeds every day. Well, Pastor Vodi Bauckham sums it up well for us, I believe. This, this combination, or this, this, this connection of the dots between this kind, of, this kind of obscured promise to Judah from a dying man, right, of, of royalty, all the way to the, to, the, to the line of Judah, David, the famous warrior king, right, the great king of Israel, to the, the final son of David, 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who, who came as a suffering servant who's going to return as the King of Kings and, and, and Lord of Lords, right? So I want to just close here uh, and ask you to just kind of focus with me for a couple minutes, close your eyes if that helps, uh, on the words that, that Pastor Vodi Bakum writes here um, that kind of ties it all up. But he writes this, Joseph's blessing of Judah points us ahead to the monarchy and particularly to King David. However, the greater echo calling out from the end of Genesis is the echo of Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed. We have caught a glimpse of the Savior to come. He is the Lion of Judah. At the close of Genesis, we can almost hear him roar. So, Pastor Bacham continues to connect the dots. He writes, God redeems Judah so Judah's son David can be king And his greater son, Jesus, can be king of kings and the redeemer of God's elect. And so, brothers and sisters, the the dots connect. You know, a bunch of authors separated by, by centuries could not just make this stuff up on their own. So, Vakum continues. He writes, Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin, the son whom his father loved. Later, David stands in the valley as a substitute for Israel as he faces Goliath, the representative of the Philippines, the great the Philistine, the Philistines, not the Philippines, excuse me, sorry, um, the great enemy and oppressor of God's people. Ultimately, Jesus offers himself as a substitute for a people whom his father loved. He goes to a valley, fights and defeats a foe, and redeems a people for his father. The result is Judah's preeminence, power, prosperity, and praise lavished on the lion who is the lamb. Reminds me of what we see at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 5. The song around the lion of the tribe of Judah that is sung and that will be sung. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So brothers and sisters, this week, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, as you sit around the table with your family and and hopefully as you talk about things that you're thankful for, right? What a... What a wonderful holiday that hasn't yet been uh, truly um, diminished um, or, or mired by, by a lot of false things and false ideas. I love Thanksgiving. But as you do so, as you, as you sit around and think about what you're thankful for, I hope you'll do that. I hope you won't just eat and then watch football. I hope that you will take time to give thanks to God and to contemplate what you are thankful for. And hopefully it's some of the people sitting around the table with you right? And some of the material blessings God's given you, like good jobs and, and, a, and, and wonderful homes to live in. And, and a nation, while uh, sometimes it seems like we're just, you know, on our way off a cliff, but a nation where you still have great freedoms that many people don't have or enjoy. Praise God for those things. Give thanks for those things, okay? But above all, I, I hope that you will, in your heart and with your mouths, give thanks for the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come back tonight, not here, first prez, right? Five minutes away, six o'clock for a great time to do this with other brothers and sisters from other churches in our community. 
uh, as we seek to give praise to God and thanks for the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work throughout history. We thank you how even words from a, a dying man, a nomad in a foreign land in Egypt, thousands of years ago, prophesy and, and point to our hope. That is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Lord, if, if there's anyone in this room or anyone who's watching online who doesn't truly yet know him, I pray that today would be the day that, that you would remove the scales from their eyes and that they would just bow before him as their king and as their hope, their hope of salvation. Lord, that today would be the day that they would repent and, and turn to him in simple childlike faith. We pray in his great name. Amen.